Warning, you are about to enter a world populated by the most appalling music ever made. Welcome to the search for the worst album of all time. This is Broken Records. But I hadn't been forgotten, I Joe. I'd been married a long time ago. Saint Bango. <laughs> a girl with kaleidoscope eyes. <laughs> You're beautiful. Hey, hey, I wanna be a rock star. Hello, hello, welcome to episode 68 of Broken Records, part of the Right Act podcast. My name's Stephen Hill, his name's Renfrey Deadman. We're here again, we're back again with another album as we search for the worst album ever made in music's long, storied and often rather embarrassing history. Renfrey, how are you? What's going on? How are you hello. doing? You okay? I'm doing okay, Steve. Um, I'm... I'm trepidatious mm-hmm. today because we're talking about someone that we both really, really love, and we're talking about a very, very rare um, downturn in his career. Let's say, yeah, it's going to be. Normally, these are pretty funny, and I think there's the odd funny bit here and there that we might have in this particular episode. But we'll try. Is it going to be? Is it going to be a, a, a lollicost in the way that you know Westlife and? The Pigeon Detectives and the True Symphonic Orchestra and Mr. Blobby was, to be honest. This might be a slightly more sombre tone. We don't really want to do this episode, to we're, be perfectly honest. I don't really want to do it. I think yeah. I might get, let's get in and get out very, We're very rarely quickly. reluctant to take shots, but I feel there's going to be an awful lot of reluctance from both of mm. us. I mean, we will, because <laughs> there are shots we'll to, to be taken. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It goes without saying, due to the artists that we're covering on the show this week that we don't actually compile these records ourselves from our own list of people that we don't like they are in fact compiled from their critical standing their fan reaction the general consensus surrounding the record maybe some odd thing that happened at the time it's definitely not us deciding that we're like ha let's talk shit about the late great Chris Cornell and his album Scream, the third studio album from the legendary singer, frontman of Audio Slave and Soundgarden, released on the 10th of March 2009. Before we get into the album, as per, here's a bit where we can have a laugh, Renfrey. We can have a little snigger at the Flop 20, the 20 worst albums that we have covered thus far on the podcast. In descending order, we start with Louis XIV, Slick Dogs and Ponies, Queen and Paul Rogers, The Cosmos Rocks, Richard Ashcroft's United Nations of Sound, Mr. Blobby, The Album, the original soundtrack to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The Movie, Eog and Quigs, Eog and Quig, Six Feet Under's Graveyard Classics Volume 2, Towers of London's Blood, Sweat and Towers, Hard to Swallow by Vanilla Ice, Cut the Crap by The Clash, Angelic to the Core by Corey Feldman, Philosophy of the World by The Shags, Asshole by Jenny Simmons, Total Zanarchy by Little Zan, Bad Blood by Blood on the Dance Floor, Self-titled album by Methods of Mayhem, The True Symphonic Orchestras, Concerto and True Minor, Double Wide Bungle Cracker, Crazy Hits by The Crazy Frog, and still at number one, I'm Not a Fan But The Kids Like It by Broken Side, also shout out, Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses, Unranked, going all over the place, a nebulous blob of oddity that is Guns N' Roses, Chinese Democracy. I've been reading that out for the last couple of weeks the flop 20 nothing has infiltrated the flop 20 for some time no you'll notice no Mm. which i thought was just interesting to point Mm. out that it's actually we've been on a fairly decent run and i have to say 
we're probably not going to go in two-footed so hard on so i would imagine just as a little spoiler i would imagine the flop 20 will stay pretty much untouched this week to be honest but um, then oh, louis the louis the 16th is number 14th, 20 14th yeah. fucking hell i always do that um yeah, yeah i think i think so yeah, yeah 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 so let's talk about scream as i said the third studio solo album from chris cornell released on the 10th of march 2009 in the mid noughties chris cornell got an unusual but for me very welcome career boost with the release of his second album carry on in 2007 i think it goes without saying for people who don't listen to us on right act every friday and haven't been listening to us a lot let's just spell this out very very clearly soundgarden and to a lesser extent audio slave and the majority of his solo career chris cornell is someone who we love right who we absolutely love 100 percent um i absolutely adore chris cornell um soundgarden i feel like kind of goes without saying we've done classic albums on soundgarden uh audio slave i think are fantastic i i really i think their first two albums are brilliant i think the third is very good um his solo career up to this point euphoria morning is a euphoria wonderful amazing wonderful yeah. wonderful record and carry on is very underrated as well really really good album i think i saw um the one of the best shows i've ever seen i think on the uh carry on tour chris cornell at the london astoria on may 16th 2007 and he played two and a half hours 24 songs three encores um his band were just absolutely amazing and it was a, a, a huge smorgasbord of audio slave stuff temple of the dog stuff soundgarden stuff uh and and solo material as well and it remains to this day one of the best times i've ever seen chris cornell in any setting whatsoever and that includes him fronting Soundgarden, which I was lucky enough to see three or four times. In fact, mm. I think I think I probably would name this. It's, it would actually be between this and the time that I saw him uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, which was a completely different experience entirely. That was just him and an acoustic guitar doing his songs. But I, I mean, I, I, I could go on and on and on about what a phenomenal person and performer i think chris cornell was i think he was a genuine legend in our time as in he was a living legend mm. we'll probably go back to this towards the end of the podcast i don't really want to start in that way but basically i was you know euphoria morning i really loved i loved soundgarden i liked the first audio slave album a lot i wasn't as keen on the next couple okay. but when carry on came out i guess you know i was listening to quite a lot of different music to that sort of thing around the time of that record coming out but i always kind of imagined in the aftermath of audio slave splitting i assume chris cornell would do a few solo records here and there and they'd be the kind of solo records that long-term fans like you and i would pick up out of curiosity and some people would and some people wouldn't you know um and a bit like you know when you'd see jerry cantrell's solo material which it's great you know like there's boggy depot is a great record and but 
no one cared about it in the same way as they cared about Alice in Chains stuff. And obviously, at yeah. this point, Jerry was back doing Alice in Chains, and more people are interested in Alice in Chains than they are Jerry Cantrell's solo stuff. Yeah, of course. Ditto with Ditto with Scott Wayland. Scott Wayland released a few not not unenjoyable solo records. Yeah, you know, but really, you want him in Stone Temple Pilots, and um, you know, I, I mean, I nearly mentioned Mark Lanigan there, and I think because. Lanigan never cracked the mainstream in the same way as you know Screaming Trees were not as sizable as those three other bands that that I've just mentioned but I kind of know, feel he's... like Mark Lanigan's bigger now yeah than yeah than yeah was, Mark Lanigan Screaming Trees as yeah well, so. Mark, I mean Mark Lanigan is 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 I guess the kind of the odd one out in this sense because yeah. he's gone on to have his own kind of I career so. revival in 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 a lot of ways but and he's, he's got he's something a, of a cult character as well over a dozen solo albums as well whereas you know Chris uh, by the time he passed away had four of original studio material uh, yeah. Scott Wyland only had two or three didn't he mm-hmm. um, yeah it's 12 Bar Blues 12 Bar Blues I heard that yeah. came out just after he'd come out of rehab or prison yeah. or something yeah, in the yeah, 90s yeah, yeah. Yeah. but you know there were a lot of ageing alternative rockers who were putting out solo material around this time and it felt for the most part that they never really cracked uh, the mainstream in the way that their their main bands did. I mean, I guess you could say that of Eddie Vedder as well. One thing I would like to say is I, 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 a conversation I had with a friend of mine popped into my head the other day. Uh, sorry, not even the other day, earlier today. Well, while I was thinking about this record and listening to this record and thinking about all those bands. And he said something to me, and I don't think I've ever brought this up, but I remember going, oh my God, yeah, you're you're so right. He said to me, the success of grunge and why grunge was such a big deal, he thinks, and why it was so much better than most of the stuff in in guitar rock music that comes afterwards is because grunge was full of people who were great singers he said you know when rock music first came you know happened you had great singers you know really really great singers and that kind of continued to grunge and in the aftermath of you know i love chino moreno he's got a marmite voice for a lot of people and i think he's but i think he's a great vocalist Mm. fred durst jonathan davis not great vocal they're not great singers are they they're not great singers even in you know people say about how good liam gallagher liam gallagher's not a great singer not in a technical sense no 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 and then you look at jack white julian casablancas whoever you want to pick from that you know brandon flowers they're Mm. not great singers in the same way as eddie vedder chris cornell Mm. lane staley mark lanagan Mm. you know absolutely phenomenal singers like proper singers and i just thought that was quite an interesting point it's like yeah there hasn't been there have been great vocalists that have come since obviously i'm not downplaying anyone but in terms of really truly world-class singers there's been a bit of a dearth of them in in kind of modern rock music since that time i think yeah arguably um there's definitely a sense as well. I, I actually think that Chris Cornell is the person that this relates to the least in that sense. But also, when it comes to Eddie Vedder, Lane Staley, and Mark Lanigan in particular, I would say, uh, and Nirvana uh, and Kirk Bain to an extent, I suppose, um, they had a draw to them which made you look at them and made you. We've talked about the charisma of Eddie Vedder in the past and how he can, you know, command a room so incredibly well. And there was just something about they could do very, very little and yet you couldn't stop staring at them. 
kind of thing. And I think the only reason why Chris Cornell is different to that is because he's the odd one out in that it doesn't feel like he's doing little. You're you're there and you're you're watching him. And you go, oh my god, this guy is a Robert Plant esque type singer. You know, like the technicality behind what Chris Cornell is doing is really astonishing and his range and all that sort of thing and it's amazing to think that when you know the beginning of Soundgarden he was a very reluctant vocalist he was the drummer in Soundgarden originally and only came out from behind the drum stool because no one else they couldn't find anyone else to sing um which is mad when you think about it now really Mm. isn't it yeah. But actually, I mean, so many of the best vocalists are reluctant vocalists, weirdly. I mean, I think when you look at think of James Hetfield and stuff like that, there mm. is there is a weird lineage with that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a really astute and good point. And there are there are some exceptions now. I think of Will from Black Pete's or Becca from Marmosettes or stuff like that. And it's really nice to see that sort of technicality coming back a bit. But yeah, certainly there was a large phase for a long time where... Uh, almost te- good technical ability was almost shunned almost that's probably going a little bit ott with it but you know it certainly wasn't seen as the be one dendle no i think you know personality in your voice having a kind of yeah. unique quality to your voice and those things are really important but i think the reason i'm bringing that up is because you don't get asked to do a bond theme unless you're a great singer or Absolutely. simon the bond or simon the bond um <laughs> Um, and that's what happened. You know, like for for Chris Cornell to come from a kind of heart, a punk grunge background, and to end up doing a Bond theme feels like one of the most unlikely wins for you know kind of underground music ever. And you know that album Carry On has got the Bond theme on it before. Now we've spoken about Bond themes on here quite a lot before, probably too much to be perfectly honest. But you know, even though I'd say you know my name is a probably a, a a top half bond song for me okay i do like it i just think i like it because i was so amazed to see someone like chris cornell getting his shot at being a legit pop star a legit pop star chris cornell at that point and that's the caliber of his voice because chris cornell like you say a reluctant singer you know coming out from the drum he starts as a reluctant singer so you would think he would want he would be a an even more reluctant mainstream pop star but yet here he is doing a bond theme and that is solely down i think to the quality of his voice which is just inescapably obviously brilliant if someone turned around to you and said chris cornell can't sing what a ignorant stupid laughable opinion that would be i've never heard anyone say that by the way no neither have i yeah i mean yeah that, that would be completely incorrect yeah yeah but um what do you think about that song? Because I think it's quite a, a, an interesting bridge to where we go for this album. Um, I think it's okay. It's um, it is on the Carry On album, and it's almost kind of tagged on the end. tagged on the end yeah. as a sort of bonus track. And to be honest, I think the album Carry On. I think it's one of the weakest moments on the record. It does, like, I'm pleased that it's on there because it's nice to have it. But it is, I, I don't love You Know My Name. I think it is a strong Bond song. Um, but I don't know how, <laughs> there's been a lot of shit Bond songs, let's put it like that. Um, so, you know, yes, I'd probably agree with you that it's in the top half, but I don't know if... Um, 
I don't know how strong a accolade that is. But I mean, it is definitely one of my least favourite songs on that record. But, you know, I think he sounds great on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, overall, it's decent, I would say. My mate Dan, who is not into music at all, really, uh, he loves that song. And he's like, oh, I, wh- wh- who was that guy? He was great. He just came out of nowhere, didn't he? And he just had that one song and then he went again. And I was yeah. like, uh, <laughs> uh. Um, the other, I think, um, noticeable thing on that record that kind of points us into the direction of where we are going is a cover of Billie Jean that is on the record by Michael Jackson, which was heard and picked up by Simon Cowell around the time on the X Factor. When Simon Cowell got one of his fucking chances to sing the Chris Cornell version of it. And Louis Walsh, I remember Louis Walsh slating it and going, oh, what's the point of doing it like that? It doesn't sound anything like the original. And Simon Cowell could finally look smug, um, like he actually knew something about music, by going, oh, Louis, it's actually a Chris Cornell version of the song, actually, Louis. <laughs> like... Right. two cunts two cunts arguing over something they know nothing about essentially <laughs> is what that was um i didn't know that i have to admit um the billy jean the, the version of billy jean on carry on I, i've seen people say they love it and i've seen people that they hate it i'm personally in the former category i think it's fantastic and i think it is i think it does what all good cover versions should do and that's make you look at a song differently like whether you like the new arrangement or not, I feel like Chris Cornell's version of Billie Jean was the first time I ever actually paid attention to the lyrics. Um, I'd never... I was too oh, really? busy. Yeah, I think so. I was too busy sort of bopping along to the song um, for the original. And um, Chris Cornell's version really focused on what the song was about which, you know, doesn't make it better than the original. I don't even know how you compare the two, to be totally honest, because they are completely different. And I think that is a really awesome skill. I know that you don't tend to be a fan of the slowing down, uh, slowing down uh, absolute rage or an absolute banger. So Mm. I'm not sure if you feel the same way about it as me. But I will say, no, okay. But I will (laughs) say, I heard it on the album and I wasn't totally convinced by it. And then I saw him do it at that Astoria gig that I mentioned and completely won me over. Really? Okay. I mean, look, bold to take on Billie Jean. We, we, We said this a couple of weeks ago with Westlife when we were like, nobody covers Man in the Mirror. Nobody covers Bohemian Rhapsody. Nobody covers this. Well... Chris Cornell covered Billie Jean and he changed it beyond all recognition. And this is also before a time where just having a breathy girl sat at a piano, having an asthma attack over a really, really famous song was like a way to sell a billion records (laughs) and sticking it on a John Lewis advert, which is ultimately what that has become. Yeah. And even if you got in early, even if you don't like the arrangement, like do you accept that he pulls it off he pulls off like covering a song that massive i think yeah in the same way as in like this will be an odd comparison but in the same way as i don't want to listen to biffy clyro's cover of buddy holly particularly but i do listen to it and i go fucking well done well fair play yeah 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 quite I I, yeah. I I would probably agree with you on 
on uh, the the Biffy Clyro Weezer cover. Um, mm. I very, very, very seldomly listen to to that. But to then it. you do. You listen to it and you go, "You've really thought about yeah. this, and yeah. you've, you've yeah, not yeah, yeah. you've not just done the you've not opted for the the easy way out, which yeah. is what most people would do." when covering a a very iconic song yeah you either go fuck that i'm not touching it or you just go let's be reverential to the original and there are a few artists that that refuse to do that and fair play to chris cornell for being one of them i think yeah he somehow makes billy jean even more soulful than the original you know which is quite a feat i mean i don't know if billy well 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 i i think in i think in his vocal performance i think i mean i don't think Billy Jean I don't think you'd point to Billy Jean as like Michael Jackson's most soulful track it's not his most soulful moment is it but I think comparing Chris Cornell's version of Billy Jean and Michael Jackson's version of Billy Jean I think Chris's is the more soulful version that doesn't mean it's doesn't strictly mean it's better but I I like what he brings to that you know I think do it's you really think, cool do you, which, which version do you prefer Chris Cornell's or Michael Jackson's <sighs> I I honestly think they are so different. I think comparing them is utterly futile. I mean, I kind of feel like you have to give it to Michael Jackson because it's just such an undeniable, massive, massive tune. But but it's it feels like one of those conversations where it's just like it's it really is null and void, isn't it? Because they are worlds apart. Yeah. <laughs> okay i mean you obviously don't think so <laughs> no i mean well they are worlds apart that's true they are worlds apart i don't think i mean for example in terms of how far apart they are, are from one another i mean maybe you'll say i'm being a bit ott but i don't think it's too ott to say it's as different as tori amos's version of uh rain and blood she did rain and blood didn't she rain and blood yeah I, i'd say it's as different as that from the original composition i mean they're both completely different yeah yes yeah 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 okay yeah and you know I mean, which version do you prefer slayer or, or tori amos i mean they're well, again, both brilliant you know for totally different yeah. reasons yeah i mean but again I, I don't know we're getting way off topic here yeah, yeah, yeah. but the Michael but you Jackson disagree. and Slayer and Slayer ones are the best. Ones, <laughs> oh, yeah, they, okay, they, fine, you know, fine. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to argue with that, but I also think they're just so different. Yeah, know? I can. I mean, I, you know, I, I listen. I, I actually quite like Tori Amos's Rain and Blood, but um, it's great. I think it's really good. Uh, I don't feel that strongly about Billie Jean, but okay. look, we're getting off the point. Yeah. Basically, look at Chris Cornell being a proper pop star. Yeah. X Factor, Bond themes. Chris Cornell, a proper actual pop star people who'd never heard of him before ever didn't know he existed was suddenly like i like that guy chris cornell yeah funny isn't it when that happens it's just funny i mean i'm not saying it's not good or bad it's just funny i think i just Hmm. sort of look at it and go here's a guy who's been around for 20 plus years doing stuff who's incredibly iconic has sold millions and millions of records and there is a huge section of society that are now for the very very first time going i tell you he's got a good voice this guy chris cornell and you're like yeah (laughs) yeah i've known that since 1994 yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah but you know this is my point 
for a lot of things where you go like what, what, what we talk about and we take things as red yeah. oh everybody knows you know that marilyn manson's a wrong and well they don't actually mm-hmm. like you know oh everybody knows that you know never minds a when people say stuff like oh you know um in bloom or breed are just as big as songs for nirvana as smells like teen spirit and you're like no <laughs> most people and i mean when and i literally mean most people don't know those songs exist yeah. like it, it, it's a whole new world out there when you get out of our little bubble and start talking to just you know people who watch mrs brown's boys and just like you know like i said like the other week when i was talking to my mate's wife who's just like i like westlife why don't know i just do those kind of people who are just sort of like oh you know entertainment is exactly that for them it's a chance for them to switch their brain off and go whatever hmm. You know, it's it's inter- it's always interesting to kind of remember and get those people's perspective. So when Chris Cornell became a pop star, I remember I was working at the London Dungeon around this time. And, you know, those people are actors as well. And they were like, oh, this guy Chris Cornell is amazing. Where's he come from and stuff? And it's like, he's in Soundgarden. And people would go, mm. he's an audio slave. He's in Sound... Bla- you know, Black Hole Sun? No. Fucking hell. And you're just like, again, it is... It's like talking to R2-D2 about Christmas, basically. You just can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't believe you just can't believe they don't know but they don't um that's a nice call back to about three months ago <laughs> it is yeah always always um but anyway so chris cornell sort of looking i guess to try and the capitalize is not really the right word but to kind of to pl- to, to kind of placate these new fans that he had decided that he wanted to release a remix record do some remixes some kind of more mainstream sounding pop remixes of songs from carry on and this is where timberland comes along now um this is the advice of chris cornell's brother-in-law who owns a club in paris by all accounts said to him timberland is the guy you need to get to produce the remixes of this, this material now I don't know if we've ever spoken that much about Timberland before, Renfrey. I used to really love Timberland's style of production. He made some fucking great records. When I first heard the shit that he did in the 90s, and particularly, you know, his his run in the early noughties where he was arguably the most, you know, him and the Neptunes were kind of vying it out for, like, the most influential producers on the planet. Mm-hmm. He had this thing that he managed to kind of capture that was super zeitgeisty. I think if you go back to some of his not super early work, but his his, his late 90s work, Super Duper Fly by Missy Elliott sounded so far ahead of its time. I remember hearing that when it came out. Volume 2 by Jay-Z in 98. One in a Million by Aaliyah. I remember hearing those records and going, in comparison to the Ross Robinson muddy production of new metal that I was listening to a lot, or, you know, those kind of quite 90s sounding Terrorvisional Three Colors Reds <laughs> records that I was listening to around the yeah. time. They sounded like something that had come from the future. Every time I heard that, I was always like, well, I was more into guitar music, way more into guitar music at this point, way more interested in that. But every time I heard those records, I was like, fucking hell, they sound much better than what's coming out from the shit that i'm listening to they sound way more futuristic and way more clean and like just big they sounded fucking great by the time you get to sort of 2004 2005 you've got his run with missy elliott continuing missy so addictive it sounds amazing the blueprint and the black album by jay-z did a couple of songs with eminem as well um 
big hits like Turn Out the Light by Nelly Furtado. That's Timberland. Diary of Alicia Keys. Um, and the big one, Justified by Justin Timberlake, which I remember hearing and just thinking, this this is the future of pop. Do you know what I mean? This is the absolute future of pop music in my hand, this CD right now. I still think that record is amazing. I would consider doing that record on a classic album. Mm. That's how far we've swayed on Riot Act into the mainstream. <laughs> uh, I want to do Justified by Justin Timberlake as a classic album. And, you know, stuff like, he's done stuff with CeeLo Green, Ludacris, Destiny's Child, Jamie Foxx, The Game, LL Cool J, Obi Trice. He did Four Minutes by Madonna and Justin Timberlake, which is an absolute fucking banger. Like, he's basically, as a singular individual, the most influential producer on the planet at that period i'm going to ask you renfrey as someone who was probably less interested in that stuff i'm guessing (laughs) to say the least yeah yeah did you have any prior knowledge of timberland or any interest in timberland prior to all of this knowledge absolutely yeah i mean i don't know how you could be into music and into production and into the way that records sound and not be aware of who Timberland was. I mean, I think it was certainly around the Justified era when people were talking about the Timberland sound a lot to me. I know he'd done loads of stuff before then, but, you know, that's when people were talking about it a lot. And Justified is a record that I really like as well. Um, I actually... I don't like it as much, but Future Sex, Love Sounds, um, Timberlake's, uh, Justin Timberlake's mm-hmm. second album. Mm-hmm. I, I think when it's good, it's really good um, as well. I, I, it's not quite as bangerful as uh, as Justified. I think that is dated a little bit weirdly, that sounds, because it sounds, le- it, it's, it sounds more of that era, hence why it sounds more dated, weirdly. I'll confess I've not listened to Future Sex Love Sounds for quite some time, um, but uh, I'll take your word for it. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, you, you name so many records there, which are absolutely huge, pretty much all of which I have never heard in my life. So um, obviously I, I'm, I'm aware of what the Timberland sound is. I feel like I'm aware of it from justified future sex love sounds and this record alone Mm. really i can hear what it is and i can hear uh the style of it and it's an interesting one for me because i think sometimes the production uh i don't know maybe i'm going into it too too early but sometimes the production on scream is actually very good and sometimes it's exactly what uh strangles the record i would i would argue but maybe i'm going ahead of myself a little bit but well i was aware of who he he was definitely you're kind of going on to something that i that i'm uh that that i was about to 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 talk about now which is like you know for me i i believe the early noughties were a a genuine golden era of mainstream pop music like I really genuinely do believe that. I think you look at the work Timberland was doing at that point. I've already mentioned the Neptunes. I would chuck in um, the Xenomania producers, the people that did Girls Aloud. Um, and then you had Richard X doing those kind of remixes and stuff. I'd even, I'd even shout out Adam Valley. I'd even chuck in stuff like too many DJs around that period <laughs> who were doing loads of cool mashup stuff. And 
rock music's um, and guitar music's um, association and uh, the bits of like dance rock that were good around that period were, were really good. And I think it was a really, really fertile and creative period for mainstream popular music where it was literally more exciting than with the exception of early metalcore and mathy kind of very very abrasive so the, the two the two kind of flagpoles that i was really really into were super unbelievably wild aggressive odd sounding jazzy math rock stuff and very very mainstream pop and i think that those two extremes were the two most exciting things that were happening and they were kind of happening in completely different worlds simultaneously and all the boring indie slosh and new metal and pop punk that was in the middle to me was i was just like well this is neither as poppy and as exciting as that and it's Mm -hmm. neither as experimental or disregarding of the rule book as that so why why would i be interested in it so that's broadly kind of what i thought but when you go through the list of albums that timberland worked on i think when you're looking at 2004 2005 cool um when you go a few years down the line after that he's still doing stuff with missy Elliott. he's still doing stuff with jay-z but he's also doing black eyed peas new kids on the block ashley simpson the jonas brothers the pussycat dolls i mean yeah you can still whack out a she-wolf by Shakira or a, or a low by Flo Rider. <laughs> but that idea that he's kind of cutting edge, that this is mainstream music, but it's done on the precipice of of cutting edge, forward thinking ideas. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah, when you're working on Hard Candy by Madonna. Yes, quite. Like that idea has very much, I think the horse has bolted at that point. Basically, you're saying Chris Cornell's brother maybe wasn't on the forefront of what was going on in popular music maybe he was a few years behind i think it's like chris cornell's brother saying that super unknown should have been produced by bob rock you know <laughs> yes actually that's that, that sounds like a pretty good comparison yeah okay yeah. you know what i mean yes you know yeah. or, or, or down on the upside i should have said it should have been produced by bob yeah, rock. yeah you know, yeah you're going like you want to get ross robinson or you know brendan o'brien or someone like that or you know and he's going no no <laughs> <laughs> you want to get Bob Ezrin and Bob Rock? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Yeah, um, that's, that's that's good. I like that. Yeah, so that's the sort of thing that I felt that I felt like. So anyway, uh, Chris Cornell approached Timberland to do some remixes of the record, and initially he didn't want to do it. Instead, he wanted to make a whole album. He said he was super into that. We got into the studio and made a whole album, which they wrote and recorded in six weeks. But then we went off on this direction of musically, sort of conceptually tying the whole thing together so that it almost harkens back to albums that I listened to when I was a kid, where the music never stops. It's a really album-orientated album. Uh, yeah? Uh, so... the. I love the idea of that in theory. It's basically what that means to interpret that is um, Mm. there's a number of tricks that are used to make sure that all the tracks flow into one another. Um, And sometimes that works beautifully on this record. 
Um, for example, I did write down one which I thought this, there's these strings that link uh, a song called Other Side of Town into climbing up the walls, which are genuinely lovely, like really, really lovely. And sometimes it really doesn't work <laughs> at all and it sounds horrible. But the concept and the idea of doing that, I think, is awesome. And actually, there's quite a lot of records that do that. I mean, Chris Cornell was using examples such as Dark Side of the Moon and stuff like this. And The Wall as well, to an extent. Yeah. Night, Night, Night of the Opera. Night of the Opera. I've got that written down in a minute. Yeah, Night of the Opera. That's all the ones that he was doing. I, I mean, mean, yes. Uh, yes, in theory, they're doing the same thing. But they sound... It, it doesn't feel like the same... It doesn't feel like the same kind of feel as those records, does it? It's an odd comparison. Yeah, it's an odd comparison because what you're basically it's 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 comparing it's going think of the hardware rather than the software, and it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that with music. Yeah, isn't it? It's hard. You know, like we often make kind of odd comparisons about. Oh, this album, you know, like Mole remind me of Kings of Leon. Like people yeah. would go, "What?" It sounds yeah. like that, but it's that's kind of that's a comparison with the hardware rather than the software. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, you kind of, I kind of have to respect Chris Cornell's attitude to doing all of this. I mean, he said, "I just want to have fun with music and do what I'm inspired by. And if I'm inspired by it, then someone else will be. If you get into that kind of comfortable corner where you're doing what you're used to, you're doing what you know how to do. You can get locked in that corner and stuck there, and you're done. That's never going to happen to me. And so, I think the idea of him coming on board with somebody like Timberland around this time, and I, I very much want to stress." Somebody like Timberland as opposed to Timberland. Timberland. <laughs> I, I think we could be looking at, you know, there's an alternate universe where this came out five years earlier or, you know, it, it was made with somebody else. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe that would have been, you know, maybe it was made with Mark Ronson around that mm. era. Do you know what I mean? It would have mm-hmm. been, been quite a different record then, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And, um, um, but I think the kind of the comparisons to stuff like Dark Side of the Moon probably weren't helpful when people were going into this record no i will also say i remember reading that um chris cornell was about to do an r&b album in kerrang and actually initially being really excited by the idea and thinking like that could potentially be really cool because i could see how chris cornell's voice could work really well in that style um, I think initially I was like, oh, R&B is in like rhythm and blues. Uh, and sadly not, because <laughs> I think that would work even better. I mean, can you imagine Chris Cornell doing a sort of, yeah, Mark Ronson, the almost Motown style record that mm. really would make me excited. But even when I realized it was like R&B in terms of the modern R&B, I was like, well, OK, I can I can see like I trust Chris Cornell. I can see how his voice would suit that and you know i was cute i was really curious and excited to hear it i i bought this album the day it came out i bought it alongside crack the sky by mastodon and the reissue of 10 by pearl jam and uh, it will not wow. surprise you to learn that it was the weakest album i bought that day <laughs> <laughs> by, no. a, by a significant amount um but i still have it i'm holding up my cd copy right here uh, i still have this record and um i think i think my love for chris cornell 
has prevented me from getting rid of it <laughs> to be honest mm. um but uh yeah you know I, I was actually even not really being a massive fan of timberland um justin timberlake aside oh that actually even was i into justin timberlake at that point probably was around that point actually um i also like niles barkley as well that reminded me um yeah. which he did some work with but um you know that was the only timberland stuff i knew but but the 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 idea didn't repulse me at all you know and i'm i'm fully embrace the fact that yeah he didn't want to become stale and he wanted to try new things i thought that was awesome yeah i think you know obviously that is that is a good idea and i think it's an odd one because he in the in the press there's a note where he, he kind of begged that this was the album you say you must listen to this album on headphones out of every album i've ever done this is the album to listen to on headphones and when mm-hmm. you think of the quality of some of the soundgarden albums that he put out and you know terry date's production on super unknown which we spent a long time wanging on about in our special you do think like no i don't think that's the thing to say here chris like it's not you know that that's the, the whole thing feels i mean cornell was incredibly enthused by timberland and obviously massively respected him um he said he comes in with actual musical ideas he's someone who's a musical genius and a songwriter and records in very unorthodox ways he's sort of reinventing the way that he does things at the same time as working with an artist you can't compare him to anyone and timberland was equally enthusiastic about chris cornell saying that the sessions were the best i've done in my entire career he called it the highlight of my career and weirdest of all he said Cornell would be the first rock star in the club. I mean, Soundgarden, very much known for their dour, quite depressing music in a, in a lot of mm. ways. He's not Nicky Six. Mm. I mean, when mm. I read that, I was like, that seems to just show a total lack of understanding of who Chris Cornell is. Yeah, who he is, where he's come from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, I, don't I mean, know. it's nice that he's obviously very enthused by him, but yeah, I I don't remember reading that at the time, but reading it then, I was like, I don't really feel like you get this guy. Mm, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of times on this record where you feel like I don't think you really get this guy <laughs> at yeah. all. Aren't there? Yeah, and you know the, the, that kind of relationship between the two of them that they're very enthusiastic about, and we actually spoke about this with Van Halen three, where Van, Eddie Van Halen was saying. Gary Sharon's the best vocalist we've ever worked with. He's the best. We all do. And what it ultimately means is, I mean, Chris Cornell said that Timberland would bring a beat in and he'd sing over the top of it. And Timberland would go, this is amazing. And Chris Cornell would go, oh my God, you brought in a beat and it's amazing. And I'm sure that was very, very nice for both their egos. But this kind of thing always makes me feel a little bit weird when everybody involved is going, ah, all the stuff I've done previously. And you're talking about world-class, amazing, incredible, genre-defining on both sides. You know, we've already mentioned the stuff that Timberland did with Jay-Z, Missy Elliott, Justin Timberlake, those artists, the stuff that Chris Cornell had done early on with Audio Slave, the stuff that he did with Soundgarden, absolute genre-defining classic material and for both of them to go no no this is the this is the highlight this is the best stuff um when people are banging on about it in these kind of enthusiastic terms it it always makes me go oh god i mean let's put it into perspective a bit more he just said that this was like a headphone album uh more so than his other ones he's not saying like this is better than anything i've ever done before no tinderland was though uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but, 
you know, I, I mean, Chris Cornell's also calling him a genius and saying, "Oh, no one's worked with like I've never worked with anyone like this guy before." Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of like hyperbole well, being thrown around. He hadn't worked with anyone like Timberland before. I don't think they probably probably hadn't. Um, it depends how you interpret that sentence. I would say. Um, I think if you're using the word genius, sure, literally sure. as the full stop in the sentence before, yeah, that's yeah. how I interpret it. I mean, I, I, I. I do understand where Chris Cornell is coming from at points on this record. There are points where it does sound very lush and very nice, and there are points where it sounds like a fucking Casio keyboard and sounds fucking horrible. Um, but, you know, there are bits of it. I could isolate um, several moments, actually, where it's like, yeah, that would sound absolutely lovely in a really nice pair of headphones, you know. Um, but certainly not the entire 63-minute opus. Absolutely not. <laughs> No, there is also so, 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 so many people that worked on this record. Endless oh, writers, yes. endless producers, performers, oh, yeah. remixers, remasters. Just so, so many people. And again, it's one of those things where you look at, I mean, we did this with the Beck album when Pharrell Williams and everyone he's ever met got involved with that last Beck album. And you're like, where's Beck? Where's Beck on this record? He's sort of there. Yeah, but he's sort of not really there, and there are certain people who that is good for. You know, there's a lot of people that's good for. If you look at the production credits on, I don't know, "My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy" by Kanye West, it's massive. Fine, that's fine for Kanye. Surround himself with super talented people, great, and utilize them correctly. But for certain artists, Beck, I would argue maybe Chris Cornell would be another one. Um, you know, you saw him at the Royal Albert Hall just with an acoustic guitar. He doesn't need loads of people surrounding him. That no, voice really and him is is fine. It's, he can do that on his own. Mm. So don't, let's not let's not swamp him. Let's not sw- like swallow the the essence of Chris Cornell. And I feel like maybe that is something that happened. I also find it quite odd that this record. They said they did it in like re- written and recorded in six weeks in two thousand and eight, but it didn't come out till March two thousand and nine, which feels like an odd gap of time when they were sort of, you know, the, the Carry On comes out in 2007 and he wants to get some remixes done of it and they record it all really, really quickly but yet there's a bit of a delay for it to come out and I've not found anything saying, oh, it's been delayed or oh, it's coming out but there was the MTV story in the middle of 2008 saying, it's done, it's finished, you can listen to it, it'll be out soon and it was saying it's going to come out in the fall of 2008 and it's obviously got pushed back, well, what you'd imagine, at least six months um, so who knows I mean that, that, I, I have nothing to add to that I just thought it was something which I noticed hmm. could have been the label wanting to release it at a time where the schedules wouldn't have been as busy yeah possibly yeah. don't know could be a number of reasons for that to be totally yeah. honest I mean yeah don't know we would be, just be speculating Yes, we are. But I thought that was sort of interesting. So it came out in March 2009. Chris Cornell actually took the album out on the road to play in full before it was released, including a date at the Scala in London in February 2009. He said on the press release for this tour, it's a musical journey of the, this is of the album. It's a musical journey like watching a great movie where you sort of forget about the normal format and get lost in the experience of the album. Renfrey, I know that you saw this show at the Scala in February 2009 prior to the record coming out. Did was... you get lost in the experience of this album? Uh, well... Many of the faults that I have with the record didn't apply um, to the live interpretations because the live interpretations were him with his band at the time. Um, 
which is a bit of a spoiler for what I think of the record. But I I was actually in the front row for this gig, and I was very very excited for it. Um, and he came out and said, "We're going to play the whole of the new album." And people knew that it was an R and B kind of album, and that I mean, it was three weeks before the record had been released so you know most people in that room hadn't heard it at that point um it was a brave thing to do (laughs) and the atmosphere sort of felt like it deflated quite quickly I don't think that is strictly down to the facts you know I think anyone coming out and saying we're gonna play the whole of a new album that you haven't heard yet i think the atmosphere is going to deflate somewhat you know um yes can i throw in uh something that we talked about recently as a slight caveat to that go on i saw radiance machine at the astoria a few months before the battle of los angeles came out Uh, and they played mostly stuff from the battle of los angeles yeah 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 there's always going to be exceptions losing their shit it's always going to be exceptions uh and yeah. age does strike me as one but um i mean don't get me wrong it wasn't like people were just i mean i was front row so i think even if people were just fucking off and going to the bar i probably wouldn't have even noticed you know what i mean um i certainly i mean i will say this i didn't come away from that gig i could have come away from that gig feeling really disappointed and I think Chris Cornell is such an amazing performer and such an amazing, like, just such an incredible voice and all that sort of stuff. I, I didn't at all. I came away from it being really intrigued about the record. I mean, like I said, I ended up buying it the day it came out. So it didn't put me off the album at all. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like those versions with the full band, I'm sure a lot of them would have been just just because of the some of the issues that i have with this record i'm sure a lot of those versions would have been better i mean we're talking about a show that i saw fucking hell 13 years ago now um so remembering it vividly i've got the the set list up here and it's basically the whole of scream and then you're on called with billy jean ty cobb rusty cage no attention jesus christ pose you know i mean it is by far and away the weakest chris cornell show i'd ever seen but i also think that's circumstantial because of what he chose to do at that show so and that was up to him mm. and yada, yada yada but of course yeah mm. listening to it in full didn't put me off enough to not buy it the day it came out let's put it that way okay all right interesting um let's have a little look at some of the reviews for the record which will kind of give you some indication as to why it's here I very imagine. curious about these ones yeah the album has a score on metacritic of 42 out of 100 which isn't completely disastrous but no. it's not great either not great. the enemy gave it four out of ten saying rock and hip-hop should not be allowed to mix seriously you can count their effective meldings on the fingers of one foot and despite the monolithic credentials of soundgarden top bloke chris cornell and hip-hop knob twiddler in excelsius timberland scream belly flops into the same ignominious pool as all the rest it doesn't help that scream is inspired by pink floyd's the wall yeah we know but the main beef is that it's neither rock enough to rock nor hip-hop enough to well make your hips hop oh god who wrote that it's not something i would have written (laughs) yeah there are flickers of funky light on the lush old school soul of ground zero and the motown-esque other side of town but for the most part it's all depressingly castrated and without and rock without bollocks is sadly 
just bollocks. Rolling Stone gave the album two out of five, saying hip-hop production god Timberland oversaw Chris Cornell's third solo album, which begs the question, can Digital Age beat party successfully with rock god Howling? The answer, only if good tunes are invited. Scream veers between drab, sleek, and rock dude soulful. Cornell's yowl never sounds at home, especially on the bitch ain't a part of me chorus on the lead track. Timbo lays it on thick, piles of guitars, dramatic synths, and percussion that at their best achieve a meticulous heaviness. With the exception of the talk ground zero, Scream feels it belongs in a time capsule, a strange mutation that could only have been born in this decade. The LA Times gave it one star out of four. What the fuck is this out of four bollocks that people love to do? <laughs> the idea of Cornell's sex god whale over Timberland's mechanised funk is appealing, but Scream draws out the worst tendencies in both of them. The icy remove of Timberland's third string beats here makes Cornell's lyrics like pain and suffering will come to those when I get even feel cartoonish while Timberland's vocal processing sucks the elastic virility from Chris Cornell's voice never far away somehow indulges the grievous ballad excess of both Akon and Daughtry simultaneously fucking hell only the slinky ground zero arrives at incendiary friction it's weird that they uh, everyone so far has said ground zero um, I don't we'll get, think it's we'll, weird, but we'll get we'll into get, that. We'll get into that. Spin gave it two and a half stars, saying produced with a heavy hand by Timberland. The third solo album from ex Soundgarden Audio Slave singer Chris Cornell is strangely appealing in its elaborately empty efficiency. Gleaming ballads like Long Gone and the title track ring mild drama from a combination of Cornell's husky crooning and stacks of portentous Phil Collins derived synth. As Akon knockoffs go, some of this stuff isn't bad, but the fast numbers, time, get up, with Cornell's angsty rock god vocals ricocheting off Timbo's skittering beats, are fresher and more enjoyable, at least in a monkey riding a tricycle kind of way. Robert Christogu gave it a bomb emoji. Mm. Uh, and that's it. Uh, he also gave Euphoria Morning a C. He's a silly cunt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing to say about that. It peaked at number 10. On the US Billboard chart, which was Cornell's highest ever charting solo album. It did, however, drop to number 65 the next week on the Billboard chart, which was the largest top 10 drop in two and a half years for an album. Yeah. And perhaps the most scathing review of the record came from a tweet. A tweet? I think Twitter was a thing back then, to be honest, but from a tweet by Trent Reznor who said that Cornell had embarrassed himself with the album which is kind of harsh I mean Reznor's never sort of backward and coming forward but it's a bit harsh for him to just sort of tweet I fucking hate the new Chris Cornell album when you just thought that they were kind of fairly good mates I don't know if they're good mates but they certainly toured together a lot and um he actually had to apologise when Nine Inch Nails toured with Soundgarden a few years down the road. So, um, chill out, Trent. I mean, he yeah. has sort of chilled out in the last decade or so, hasn't he? So, I think quite a lot. It sounds. It's, I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Trent Reznor was an early adopter of Twitter, and it sounds like um, someone figuring out how to use Twitter. And I mean, there's a lot of people who are still, by that logic, trying trying to figure out how to use Twitter, and it's yeah. not just to insult people. Totally unnecessary that was that guy doing that. I don't entirely disagree with uh, what Trent is saying there, but uh, but I I don't entirely agree either. I think it's a little bit. I think I, I it's. To sum up this record in 124 characters, whatever it was at the time, you you can't really, I don't think. Not fairly. No, No, not really, no. So, um, enough about all that. Enough about 
bloody Trent Reznor things. Renfrey, what do you think about Scream by Chris Cornell? Oh, what do I think about this record? I think... Well, I, I've given it away a little bit already by saying this is one of the albums that I am the most familiar with that we've gone into with Broken Records. I'm thankful to say that the majority of the albums that we cover on Broken Records, when we listen to them, it's the first time I've heard them. And bar a few exceptions, like, I mean, Chinese Democracy is probably the one that I'm most familiar with that we've done. But, you know, Supercharger I was fairly familiar with. But, you know, when I bought this record, there was a, a, a couple of weeks of listening to it every other day in a kind of, I'm trying to get this and maybe there's something I'm missing sort of way. And as a result, I know this record well-ish i know some songs better than i know others um i think some songs stand out better than others um i think it begins dreadfully dreadfully this album um starts with the oddest most unnecessary casio keyboard sort of trumpet fanfare for seemingly no reason whatsoever um and when chris cornell was talking about you know this is a headphone shit. record it's shit yeah it's it ab- shit absolutely terrible i i defy anyone to try and defend that opening fucking nickelodeon shite that opens this record it is dreadful it's like 80s cbbc grange hill music it's utter- on a fucking it's awful utterly pointless and and i don't understand one of it. the worst starts to an album imaginable yeah <laughs> I, I i don't think that's a bad shout actually um and actually i think the the terribleness more or less continues for the first oh, four when, tracks when that robot voice goes chris cornell yeah you're like fuck Go, off shut up rubbish oh, abs- i mean the first four songs on this record are absolutely diabolical part of me is just horrible there's those crappy fart noises in the verses which is just fucking annoying there's some nice and bits and pieces going on in the production in the background in the chorus but it's kind of ruined by that pretty it's a pretty shitty sentiment as well which cornell i think is above and and you know we talked about um ain't my bitch on the metallica load classic album and how like some people had misinterpreted it as being a faintly misogynistic thing but you know really it was just james hetfield saying it ain't my problem this is that bitch ain't a part of me i mean there is a like just slightly nasty misogynistic thing going through it which i'm kind of like why are you doing that you're chris cornell why the fuck are you doing that? yeah i i mean my i I got that i heard i I put this on and then my notes went straight away i've actually put the first few songs i just spent trying to work out what exactly the fuck is going on here i mean time time had a slight bit of propulsion to it that i was like well it's got a bit of propulsion to it but the chorus is a mess of course cornell is so unbelievably underutilized and it sounds cheap as fuck the 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 synthesized beats are sounds so puny uh Mm. on time and when cornell starts singing make a little love make a little war tell me how it feels dreaming without a future i'm just like oh man you've Mm. written some amazing lyrics and you've just said make a little love make a little war what are you doing (laughs) you know um and the transition from time to sweet revenge is horrible 
and then you get that Madonna acoustic broken beat thing that we spoke about before, oh. which we said was shit before, and it sounds even worse all these years later. Terrible. I mean, Cornell channeling Michael Jackson could work as it did on the Billie Jean to an mm-hmm. extent, but mm-hmm. it just don't. I mean, you 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 that auto tune auto tuned chorus bit. It's like is one of the worst moments of the album for me. You are auto-tuning Chris Cornell. Exactly. What the fuck are you thinking? I've put the same thing in my notes. Why are you auto-tuning Chris Cornell? Why? Mm. You fucking imbecile. Why are you doing that? It is... Sweet Revenge is one of the worst songs on here. It's terrible. And Get Up to me just sounds like... You know when you... like the, The kind of the... It sounds like a Super Nintendo games, like, opening the music to like you know when you have the like press start to yeah. play yeah it sounds like the kind of music from a super nintendo game yeah it's fucking it's crap and i just horrible. spent the first few songs trying to work out what the fuck was going on here yeah. because it just does not suit chris cornell in any way whatsoever there is an alternate universe as mentioned where mark ronson or someone else or even timberland where timberland says you know what chris it's all well and good you wanting to do something poppy and current but actually you're kind of too dark a vocalist to make this stuff sound fun and lightweight mm. and throw away you've got a you've got a brooding intensity about you which people fucking love yeah right and that's your strength yeah so let's get you doing a serious soul album now i know you want to be zeitgeisty but I'm going to say this to you. I'm normally working with the Black Eyed Peas and I have to do this shit to make their fucking rubbish music sound good and to sell it to to complete morons. I have to do that shite with them, but we can do something much better. And they could have made a, a, like you say, a proper fucking soul album. But instead, they try and make some fucking crisp packet thin club bangers and it is not the strong suit of chris cornell and timberland is kind of treading water in his own career at this point Mm. and i don't know man i it's bad i think those first four songs in particular there are moments where you can hear the 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 brilliance of chris cornell trying to come out of this really horrible skittering and yet really puny production uh, and the production like i sort of said earlier the production is just throttling cornell at every single opportunity i do think and i'm not sure if you agree with this or not because you seemed a little bit surprised that a lot of the reviews have pointed out uh pointed it out as a highlight but i do think around ground zero which is track five we're a good 20 minutes into the record at this point or certainly almost 20 minutes into the record the production does start to calm down a bit it does start to become a bit more organic rather than that horrible synthesized casio puny keyboard bullshit which never sounds good in anyone's hands i don't think i mean i'm sure there might be some examples but it very very rarely does um and i think ground zero in fact, I know Ground Zero. The bare the bare bones of Ground Zero as a song are great. It's really good, really soulful. Um, and I've seen him, I've seen Chris Cornell perform it on an acoustic guitar, and it sounds great. Stripped away of all the bits and pieces that are going on around it, and even on this record, I don't think it sounds bad. Ground Zero at all, and I think the record does 
begin to improve at this point. There are still times where it does get bogged down in the production too much, but just generally, I think there is a a point where the album changes slightly and like i say it is it does start to become a bit more organic and 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 just settle down a little bit and the strength of some of the songwriting not all of it but some of it begins to come through do you agree or do you disagree <laughs> i massively disagree oh, i think right. zero is absolute shit i think oh, it's really? rubbish Ground okay. zero it's meant to be it's a bit on the nose for a start it's, about, uh-huh. it's meant to be about 9-11 yeah. and it's like when it all comes crashing down ground zero and you're like that's a bit on the nose yeah i agree that they do try to go for some more organic style production i mean it sounds i know this came out after but it sounds like blurred lines by robin thick until you get that Ooh. woo, yeah, yeah. That, Woo, yeah, that, that stuff's a whoa, shame. yeah thing is like fucking is like something Jason Donovan would have had in 1988 in one of his like high energy singles. It's terrible. The scratching in the towards the end of it is like, why are you doing that? Yeah. What a fucking waste of everybody's time. And then the sort of melt more melt. It's not really auto tune, but there's kind of these weird meltedy sort of low vocal parts, which I think sound horrible. And then that kind of fake sounding orchestral thing as well, which all kind of coalesce towards at the end when everything drops out and the orchestra's there, that orchestral part on its own, that sounds fine. That's great. And yeah. it kind of, and then it goes into the start. I think you said it goes into the start of never far away. I would say um, when it, that's where I started going, it calms down a bit and i get what you're saying because there are bits of ground zero where you go well it's not as tinny and processed but i think it's still it's still as much of a mess and it sounds like blurred lines but at this point listen to it now it's like i know blurred lines hadn't come out of that yeah yeah yeah, yeah, but it sounds like blurred lines. i'm very upset you said that i'm very upset you said that because i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to enjoy that song ever again um i but yes i actually understand what you're saying and actually all of the little individual bits that you pointed out there they're like Ooh, and all those like random bits that come in yeah i completely agree with you i can't remember if i liked ground zero when i bought the record or if it's because i've heard so ground zero is one of the songs that chris cornell performs on songbook for example which is just him and an acoustic guitar and they did recordings of it it's a live album that he released not long after this well a few years after this in the acoustic version you can hear that the bare bones of it are a good song it's not you know it's not fell on black days or anything like that it's not like the strongest cornell song he's ever written but you can hear it i, I can believe that yeah yeah, yeah. It, like there is a good song there and i suppose maybe i mean i've heard that version of ground zero far more often than i've heard this version so it might be that that is making it do that but certainly, I absolutely agree with you. There are production bits in this version which are really annoying. I do think it starts to calm down, though. And Never Far Away, which I think you're about to get... I mean, I thought Never Far Away was actually pretty good, coming back to it. Like, I, I don't think it's too bad. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, what it does... It's not too bad. And the reason it's not too bad is because Never Far Away and then it goes into kind of Take Me Alive, which has got a bit of that kind of 
cod eastern mysticism thing which i think they have done they have done like you know Soundgarden had hinted at at stuff like that before and done it a million times better but i did think over those over those songs i was like well this at least sounds more like actual chris cornell yes i agree i agree like rather than someone who's got a a similar sounding voice to chris cornell but is just yeah not chris cornell yeah it definitely begins to get better at this point. I, I, I think yeah, that yeah. is, you know, definitely true. I, I actually found myself thinking that Never Far Away was, was okay. I didn't think it was great, but I thought it was okay. There's 13 songs on this record, 14 if you include the uh, bonus track. Um, I'm not going to, though, because uh, it's a cover. Um, I think five of them get a pass, in my opinion, out of the 13. Ground Zero is yeah. the first one for me, but actually I acknowledge probably because I have heard the songbook version more often and never far away is the second so yeah um take me alive didn't get a pass because that middle eastern stuff like you said soundgarden have done it way 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 better uh justin mm-hmm. timberlake's on this song as well um and he doesn't like improve it in any way shape or form no, he doesn't, no, no. <laughs> but um no. it's certainly not the worst thing on the record take me alive but it's not good enough to get a pass from me unfortunately no and i thought long long gone was you know it kind of you almost go into kind of soft rocky ballady territory at this point and you think i know for me it goes on way longer than it should really go on i think well again i was about to say long gone does get a pass for me but um both of those things i don't necessarily disagree with i just think at this point in order to give a pass to anything at all i have to lower my expectations i i think i think I think Long Gone gets a pass because it's one of the stronger tracks on the record, whether it deserves that pass or not, or whether I just it was just some sort of Stockholm syndrome at that just this feels, point. I don't know. It just feels so long. And then mm. when the title track comes in, it's more that kind of lo fi pop thing. It doesn't really I wasn't really feeling it and I looked at it, it was six minutes, I was like, Oh my heart sort of sank. And the bit where the guy goes, There's no there's like some I don't know who he is, but he just goes, There's no need to scream, baby. Oh. I was like, uh I, I, again I there's a good song trying to get out with the title track. And and again, because I've heard it done without all the stupid production stuff and because I know that there is a good there's a good three minute song trying to get out with Scream. The version on this album is six minutes and fourteen seconds, which is ridiculous. But yeah. you know, that hook, it it's a strong hook, you know? Mm. Like it works. Um but yeah. I, I mean again it gets a pass for me, but only because I think I'm aware of a stronger version that exists, you know. Right, yeah. So. I mean I think we can kind of the album starts to really um bleed into itself a little bit at this it point does. i felt like there's a kind yeah. of like endless process beats and cornell has been swamped in noises that don't really suit him yeah. i think other side of town could have a cool hook in it but they just batter it to death yeah and cornell's just had so much gravitas in the past that this just feels completely beneath him there, and was, I, a, there I thought... was a really interesting review that said it had a motowny type feel and i feel mm. like it could have a Motowny type feel if it wasn't being battered by all that production stuff. Yeah. And again, Climb at the Walls, I thought the chorus was okay, but again, it's so long and they over egg it so much. 
And I think Climbing Up the Walls is the best song on the record, which is not saying a lot. I do too. Okay, cool. I actually do too, to be honest. I was about to say, it's probably the best song on the record, but I do think somebody needed to... Again, this is like, oh, you're great. No, you're great. Oh, no, you're great. Oh, more, more, more. Mm. You're great. I think if they had been a little bit more judicious Mm. with that, then it maybe would have been an actually really good song as opposed to the kind of the the nucleus of a good song, which is just absolutely smothered by way 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 too much stuff yeah yeah agreed yeah uh watch out terror is absolutely (laughs) maybe the worst song on the record i don't know what is going on there watch out is a return to the quality of the first four songs just 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 for one last fart trying to do bad boy lover boy grunting gyrating yeah. chap is not i mean you did that you did that with glam metal on big dumb sex but this feels like a fucking million miles away from that do you know what i mean like is this a fucking parody of crap r&b singers like i i i, I really don't know i think that's the thing big dumb sex was a parody you know and most people were in on the joke apart from Soundgarden's bass player at the time but um uh, you know, this doesn't come across as a parody. It comes across as uh, more sincere than that, which just makes it a little bit cringy, really. It's really, 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 really quite bad. Yeah. Really, really quite bad. Um, Yeah, it's really, it's really shit. Um, and two drink... I tell you what, one thing I did say, right? I, I know you said you weren't going to talk about the, the John Mayer bonus mm-hmm. track, Two Drink Minimum. And my argument which was why didn't they let chris cornell do a classic sounding you know lean on motown and an early soul and do and that would have been great but that two drink minimum does try and ruin my argument because that is more trying to be kind of classic sounding jazz bluesy stuff and it's fucking rubbish like (laughs) chris cornell sound i think chris cornell sounds amazing on it Mm. but the but whoever's arranged it it just sounds like a fucking pub band it's crap i i i don't mind it it's fine i i acknowledge what you're saying but i i think it's again i think it's one of the best things on the record <laughs> oh, it's, but it's bad it's bad yeah, um okay. I, but i've got to be honest i think everyone else like you know this is not just us being chris cornell fanboys which we are mm. but i do think everyone else is the problem here pretty yeah. much for the most part i mean chris has got some there's some lyrics where you just go no 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 don't do that yes but you kind of would feel that maybe he was I don't know, just seduced by the idea of doing something a bit different and really leaned on in, in, into it a little bit too much, maybe. Mm. But I do think that ultimately, Chris Cornell, when he sounds like himself, sounds good on this album. I agree. I think Timberland didn't really understand what he was getting himself into here. Nope. He doesn't seem to understand Chris Cornell's strengths and weaknesses at all. And he was pretty much, like I say, running on empty creatively at that point. Mm. It's not a good album. I don't think it's quite the absolute fucking disaster that it's painted to be it's just very 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 uninspiring and very odd and unsurprisingly for me the best moments are when it's a little bit slower a little bit darker even then it's not great and you know you can kind of see again like you can see why you would compare it to dark side of the moon because it does feel like one long continual piece of music mm-hmm. but unfortunately well, well, it Pink is Floyd... one long continual piece of music yeah, in theory but yeah 
but whereas Pink Floyd decided to do that by making their albums broad and vast and wide and cinematic and mm. eclectic, this just feels like the same thing going yeah forever and ever and ever and it's it it's really it really does go on as well it really as goes long on. as fuck we yeah. get to the midsection midpoint of the album and it's going on and it just really fucking <sighs> which is a shame because in my opinion arguably some of the best stuff is around the midsection but i do agree you you you're so sort of fatigued by that point that you're just like for fuck's sake it keeps it keeps shooting itself in the foot this record over and over again it's really really it's a it's a really irritating listen because you know you can hear chris cornell you can hear glimpses of his brilliance come out quite often and then like i say it's just strangled by all these ridiculous bleeps and bloops and fart noises and like what the hell's going on here why you yeah like you say why the fuck are you putting auto-tune over chris cornell's voice you know don't put you wouldn't put auto tune over Robert Plant's voice. Like, why are you doing that? It, I, I, it's baffling to me. Absolutely baffling. Really, very, very odd. Odd decision making. Yeah. Um, but again, it just smacks of someone who's like, "Well, this is what I usually do." It's like, yeah, yeah. but you usually do it with Fergie and Will I Am. Yeah. Moron. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And Nicole Scherzinger, like, don't do it with bloody Chris Cornell. Mm. So anyway, we're going to rank the record in a second. But before we do, do a quick kind of little aftermath. Because I think we, if you want to go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash right act podcast. There's a lot of Soundgarden stuff on there. We talk about the kind of last few years of Chris Cornell. Um, but Chris Cornell got immediately, the second that he was kind of adopted into the mainstream, he was thrust straight back out of it almost immediately. And, yeah. And, I know a lot of people went, ah, here he comes with his tail between his legs, coming back to rock music. <laughs> but it did feel like, you know, a bit of a low point for Chris Cornell, undoubtedly. Certainly not. The way he was being speak, spoken about did not feel like how someone of his standing deserved to be spoken about, I didn't think. No. And maybe at his lowest ebb, but ultimately part of his redemption, I believe, was at the Download Festival in 2009. And this is only, now when I think about it, it seems mad, it's only four months after the record came out. So it was the start of June 2009, and the record had come out at the start of March. Mm. And it was my first download, it's my favourite download I've ever been to as well, I think. He played on the second stage, subbing The Prodigy on the Saturday. And he was on at the same time as Marilyn Manson was doing that infamously, diabolically bad set. Mm. And... I took a punt because I wanted to get a good place to see The Prodigy. I was like, yeah, I don't need to see Marilyn Manson. I'm going to take a punt and go and watch Chris Cornell. And I turned up about 10 minutes before Chris Cornell started. And I think I've said this a few times before on various things that we've spoken about. There was literally about 50 people there mm. in that field. Mm. It was empty. I mean, it was like an hour before the first band of the whole day was coming on the second stage. Mm. It was completely completely empty and you know i was like oh shit this is gonna be an odd decision that i've made this is a you know this is this could be a real car crash of a thing and he came on and by this point by the time he was on there were maybe like you know you think how that second stage at download probably get about ten thousand people mm -hmm. when it's full up on yeah. that, that second Easy. stage and I reckon there was maybe like 200 people there, two, 300 people there. 
it was dead it was completely dead you know mm-hmm. you could you could walk to the barrier and stand on the barrier if you wanted to so he comes on out and his band were looking like some sort of you know maroon five style backing band yeah uh that he had with him and they did look like that but they played very well yeah and i thought oh god and then they played the opening song from this album yeah and i thought oh my god this is gonna be a fucking car crash mm. and i stood there and the song ended and he went into let me drown from super unknown show me how to live from audio slave no such thing from carry on by audio slave set it off from audio slave Cochise from the first audio slave album hunger strike from temple of the dog and Spoon Man from Super Unknown. That was the next run of songs that he did. Yeah. And it was fucking incredible. And then he did the title track and Watch Out from this album. Not great, Shame. fine. Yeah. But he yeah, but he ended with Outshined and Black Old Sun. Mm. He played a little over what was that? Forty minutes, forty five minutes, I think he might have played. Yeah. And it was gobsmackingly brilliant. Mm. It was amazing. And I turned around and said to my friend at the end of the day, we left that day and we were chatting about the day and what, you know, what we've been up to and stuff and about what highlights and how, you know, that Chris Cornell was undoubtedly one of them on the Slipknot day as well. This is Slipknot 2009 download day. And we walked away going, how good was Chris Cornell? And I remember saying at that point to her, like, surely Soundgarden are going to reform. Like, surely he's going to see that and go, I am too good. For, like, the reaction to those songs from, you know, at that point, you know, people turn up for the Prodigy and there ended up being a few thousand people right there, probably, I reckon, by the time he finished. But it was still empty. It was fucking empty. You know, there was more people watching Trigger the Bloodshed when I turned up that morning <laughs> and Suicide Silence than there were watching Chris Cornell. And I was like, he's got to get back with Soundgarden hmm. because he can't be doing this. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not going to get, he's not going to be doing any more Bond themes. The, the main, all, all the like pop artists and stuff have dropped him immediately. Mm. As soon as he went into those songs, people lost their shit. And people love those songs. Like, and sure enough, come the start of 2010, Soundgarden had once again, indeed reformed. And I got to see Soundgarden three times. And Although I never truly felt like I saw an incredible, brilliant Soundgarden show, and I should have seen them in their prime. I think I spoke about it. we did our special yeah. how I, I didn't I didn't go and see them at Brixton with Moby supporting them in 1996 because I was too scared to go to Brixton. Um, but at least I saw them. You know what yeah. I mean? I, did, I saw Soundgarden three times, yeah, and now same. sitting here today, I am like, thank fuck I did get to see Soundgarden. Yeah, thank fuck I did get to see Chris Cornell a bunch of times, and. You have to wonder that had this record have worked out and had Timberland or somebody else have got it and tried to mould him into a pop star and he'd become a pop star and, you know, really truly crossed over in the way that, you know, certain people have. We might not have had that Soundgarden Reformation. We might not have had the, the those shows that I think everybody in, in rock music really wanted to see. And that really... I feel like is where he kind of belongs. And the fact that when he went back out on tour and he did stuff like solo acoustic shows all on his own and, and still, you know, like that went back to his kind of roots yeah. more on that next solo album. Yeah. And you get that Chris Cornell box set and you listen to the stuff that they were working on. You're like, Oh yeah. Chris Cornell's fucking Chris Cornell again. That's the guy that, yeah. you know, this is, this is the tiniest little misstep 
in an otherwise sublime career it really is it really is i mean the the album you're talking about uh higher truth i think it's called is brilliant it's probably my second favorite chris cornell solo album after uh after euphoria morning um the only thing that i will say as a slight counter to what you're saying is he had been playing these vast shows like i mentioned the astoria show uh that i saw him may 2007 uh later that year he came back in september 3rd and did the roundhouse i saw that show as well and i mean what you saw at download was a massively truncated version of what he was doing there i won't read both of them out but the set list for the astoria for example he started with spoon man went into outshined show me how to live arms around your love you know my name then hunger strike temple of the dog song what you are by audio slave rusty cage by Soundgarden. be yourself by audio slave seasons i am the highway by audio slave scar on the sky can't change me from euphoria morning doesn't remind me by audio slave coaches by audio slave it's billy jean cover no such thing jesus christ pose by Soundgarden. then he encored with mission from euphoria morning like a stone by audio slave and black hole sun and a second encore with Sun Shower and an absolutely seismic version of Loud Love by Soundgarden. And then a third encore was probably the most devastating version of Slavers and Bulldozers I've ever heard, including seeing Soundgarden playing it. So he was doing all of that stuff for a couple of years beforehand. So I don't think it was like, oh, suddenly I'm seeing the... Because he was getting that reaction at those gigs, believe me. Um, mm. He really, really was. I mean, it, I thought the story was going to fall apart, you know, when they were playing Slays and Bulldozers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, was Scream... I don't know. Uh, I don't know. We're, we're speculating if we say Scream was, you know, part part of a catalyst for Soundgarden reforming. But certainly there is a pattern a lot of the time where people do a album which is not very well received. I mean, you say very not not very well received. It wasn't critically, but commercially, the most successful album. I don't know how much Chris Cornell really cared about that sort of thing. Well, no, no, no. I mean, it went in at number 10 because he was a big name and then it dropped true, immediately. True, true, true. So it's yeah, not yeah, been yeah. certified at all. In fact, I'm actually going to just very, very, very quickly look to see if um, how Carry On did in the charts because obviously that didn't mm-hmm. uh, get anywhere. But, I mean, it doesn't appear that that... I mean, that, that peaked at number 17 on the Billboard's top 200. But, I mean, it, that hasn't been certified anything mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's hard to say, really, because yeah, I mean, it's not even gone. It's not gone gold or mm. anywhere. Yeah. It's not gone gold. Any, literally, not gone gold anywhere. Yeah. I don't think any of his albums have. In fact, probably not. By the looks of things, I think Euphoria Morning would be the only one that'd have a chance of doing so. It doesn't seem to have been. No, really. Okay. But yeah, you know, so it was a. I think off the back of a Bond theme, probably people went and bought it yeah you know like a few more people would have gone and bought it and in terms of what you're saying about the set list the set list was all well and good doing that set list to the astoria or you know he played the scala i know doing that new album in full to no one at download two years later they were headlining hyde park yeah yeah exactly which is where he should have been in front of the amount of people that he should have been so certainly i know you know like you say album sales and probably the size of the shows weren't hugely important to chris cornell but he was someone who was used to playing 
to a lot of people and mm. and it's not even like oh yeah the people that carried on going to those shows and like you know they 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 might they were hardcore fans and they were probably fairly but they were small in number but it's the people who were like oh look at chris cornell oh look at what he's wearing now oh look at him trying to be a rock oh he's got a studded diamante belt and he's you know he's trying to look like a fucking rapper and all this sort of shit and and that was the sort of attitude and i think it was as much and and then when the you know the mainstream were like while we're out actually mm. like this album's not worked good luck mate mm. see you later go back go back to your grunge buddies and people were kind of in in rock music were you know obviously a bit sneery about him that would have made me go uh, well you know i know what i'm good at yeah and true you know and maybe i miss doing the thing that i'm i'm good at and i had a go at doing that pop thing and that's cool that's fine you know he had a go at doing it, it didn't work out there's no shame in that at all no I don't no think there's no, any no shame in it i think you know like he's a fucking you know he's one of the great vocalists i just think people were a little bit overly disrespectful towards chris cornell around this period and i'm not oh. talking about the people that that went to the shows i'm talking about the people that that, that didn't absolutely you know? i mean i i couldn't agree more and i think the the final thing to say on this record is chris cornell himself is undoubtedly the best thing about it i mean that's not yeah. saying loads considering it's like the opposite of the vanilla ice album isn't it? where we were like <laughs> this is all right and then vanilla ice is yeah. so bad whereas i wouldn't say chris cornell was so amazing on this record but it's still chris cornell for about sort of 50 percent of the time yeah and it's and when he is it's the best thing oh, on the record comfortably by far. comfortably yeah so we gotta rank it we gotta rank hmm. it somewhere renfrey yeah um hard one it is a hard one because this is not a good record no and i think maybe we're being we we can't be too i mean people will accuse us of being we're going to say like oh, don't, we don't want to disrespect chris cornell because he's you know he means a lot to us and he's passed away now and it's really sad but then at the same time we were quite happy to sort of still shit on one more light by linkin well, park yes exactly after chester bennett instead but then i guess chris cornell's sort of very important to us and we just think Chester Bennington's well I think Chester Bennington's are just some, a massive hack so I don't really care about that so but that's that's my this is my this is our podcast and we'll do what we fucking like <laughs> but basically yeah <laughs> yeah that's broadly how I feel about it I would say that's around the area that I'm looking though to be honest that kind of one more light generation swine Megadeth super collider oh, thing it, it, this is not a great record at all Man, okay. I, I was looking lower than that. I was looking uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Black Flag kind of level, which is around 10 lower than you were looking at, which might show our disparity between how much we like solo Chris Cornell. I don't know. Well, look, uh, what are your arguments? Well, my arguments for that would be a few things. Okay. Um, so I was thinking it's it's better than generation swine because there's nothing as bad on it as brandon, brandon there's true. nothing as bad on anything as brandon <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> definitely not anything as bad as anything on brandon and the fact that's not in the top 20 with brandon on it's it. crazy but yeah. one more light generation swine uh christmas in the stars and famous first words by viva brother I think are all examples of an artist past their creative peak struggling to against the tide of popular opinion 
to really quite diminishing returns. I mean, Viva Brother, Famous First Words is an odd one to put in there, but Viva Brother basically went, we're going to reinvent Britpop, but we're going to be the only people that do it. And it's like, well, you can't, what, you? And, and you were an emo band last year, and now you you think you're going to be the sort of second coming of Blur and Pulp? You can't do that, you mad fucks. Mm. So that's a very arrogant, stupid thing to do. Uh, Christmas in the Stars, I mean, as we spoke about, it's just an absolutely bizarre and ludicrous, Mess, insane, yeah. messy undertaking of a thing which never made any sense at any point and was solely done as a cash-in, no matter how much you like doing disco Star Wars and you pretend you just like hanging around with Anthony Daniels and being <laughs> starstruck by him. You did it for the money, mate. Generation Swine was, fuck, grunge has come, but we've had to get our old singer back, but it's sort of grunge isn't really here and we don't really know what to do, and Brandon... And then one more light by Linkin Park is we were heavy and then we weren't and then we said we'd go heavy again and no one cared. So fuck, we'll just get Stormzy and we don't know what the fuck to do. And I think there's a similar there's a similar result on this record. If not intention, I think there's a similar result on this record. Because I think you've got Chris Cornell making a record probably that he wants to make but one that is unsuitable this is like putting chicken tikka on your ice cream yeah. do you know what i mean yes yeah like it just doesn't work and somebody i'm not I, the thing is is that i don't actually believe this is a cynical record in the same way as i believe those records are cynical but i think it is two people who are so desperate to do something new and they're so desperate to become part of the other person's world that they've not stopped to consider for a minute why they aren't part of each other's world Mm. timberland is basically i think at this point phoning it in and doesn't understand chris cornell at all and chris cornell is so excited at the idea of doing something new that he's forgotten to remember that he also should be doing something good and somebody at some point needed to say to both of them while they were slapping each other on the back somebody needed to say to both of them this is not this is not going to work you need to because it's a weird one that they talk about how great the collaborative process was Mm. and yet ultimately there doesn't appear to be any kind of semblance of collaboration on the record no, they do. It, often the two parts feel very chalk and cheese and don't feel like they really flow together. Yeah, and there's never like when we spoke about Converge Blood Moon, how great Chelsea mm. Wolf and Converge were at melding themselves together and listening to each other. And there's no egos involved here. This does just feel like two people telling each other how great they are, and the results not being of any value to anyone. Okay, so. I mean, I suppose I am going to go back to my sort of Chris Cornell bias ever so slightly just because, like, so the Linkin Park comparison, for example, I know there's loads of people who go, oh, Chester Bennington, what a wonderful singer, blah, blah, blah. Um, Compare him to Chris Cornell and he ain't shit. Like, he just just ain't. No. Um, And I think the... Because of the the flashes, the the times when chris cornell does come through this record like the sun through a particularly dark cloud it does happen a few times like multiple times during this record actually where you just go jesus christ but isn't chris cornell a phenomenal singer and jesus christ isn't chris cornell 
brilliant at coming up with melodic lines and hooks and stuff like that and every so often that happens i mean i reckon it happens at least a dozen times listening to this um, maybe a dozen times <laughs> maybe <laughs> there are, just to put that into perspective there are 13 songs in this album renfrey has pointed out that two of them are good and now he's telling us that there are 13 times where chris cornell uh, sorry 12 times where chris cornell makes you go wow where, where the, I, I think where that's there's way where there's many. a moment where you just go fuck me wasn't he a great vocalist you know i'm not saying like an entire song at all i'm not saying i and and that moment might just last three three seconds you know but if yes, it's very frustrating <laughs> it, yeah it, and it is and that is you know arguably yeah i mean arguably that is uh, that does make it really what a frustrating. waste yeah what yeah. a what a waste what an even worse what you know because like, here's so here would be my arguments to put in it um I, I would put it, and you're not going to like this, but I would put it between Viva Brothers' famous first words and Razorlight Razor by Razorlight. Mm. Because Razorlight are not good. No. There's nothing frustrating about Razorlight. I think Viva Brother, there's a... I mean, look, Johnny Burrell's an arrogant prick. I'm not going to d- deny that he's not. But there's something about Viva Brothers' famous first words where, you know... I mean, I suppose, actually, maybe... Maybe I'd put it between Razorlight and Puddle of Mud because I'm going to drop it down because I think Razorlight is a bad record and Johnny Burrell thought he was Bob Dylan as well. So, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, fuck off. Fuck but, you know, Puddle of Mud starts with, you know, there are good songs on that Puddle of Mud record yes. and they are not capable of making them good, mm. right? So it never had a fucking, you never had a chance, right? Like, you, the arrogant and folly and silly, like, attitude of you trying to do great songs these songs are not good songs they're not good songs and they're strangled and you are strangling the one element that could elevate it for the most part mm. same with bloodhound gang like you know i can't get annoyed with the bloodhound gang just being rubbish because the bloodhound gang are rubbish yeah. dirty vegas is one is like oddly kind of vaguely comparable to this because i think if you took chris cornell off of this and put it onto one by dirty vegas you'd basically have the same album mm. um mm. and it's weird to kind of go well that's going to put it lower but i think dirty vegas could have utilized chris cornell better than timberland does yeah there's a good argument for that i have to admit you are you are persuading me um mm. I, when you when you said between viva brother and razor light i thought to myself what would i rather go back to scream or razor light and i honestly think scream uh, even though it's double the length I really hate Razorlight that much. I, I I don't like Razorlight at all. I think, kind of objectively speaking, uh, the Razorlight's almost more memorable than this. Like, I yeah. can't believe I'm going to say it. it's almost <laughs> yeah. a more memorable record, and it doesn't have, you know, like on one hand you're going, oh, aren't there moments where Chris Cornell sounds great? But because they are like two, three seconds, and because you go, why are you doing this to Chris Cornell? And because Chris Cornell is also mm. You know, he's put in, um, even he is, 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 you know, the, the, you mentioned the first track and, you know, the kind of club singer, Chris, you know, That's Chris Cornell, actually. bad boy in the club. It's like, why are you doing that to yourself, Chris? Like, why? Yeah. Like, I get you want to do something different, but doing something different doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something new, you know, doing something new doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something good. Like, I could go, oh, I fancy doing something new for my dinner tonight, so I'm just going to eat a load of goat pubes. <laughs> like, that doesn't make it, like, nice. Do you know what I mean? It's a fucking stupid idea, and it yeah. always looked like a stupid idea. And the thing is, you know, again, on paper, like you said, 
I don't think the, the idea of Chris Cornell doing an R&B album or a soul album or a pop album is necessarily a bad idea. Mm. What is a bad idea is flushing every essence of Chris Cornell away from it mm. and swamping it with, you know, a producer who clearly is, at, at this point, is a one-trick pony who will work and do the same thing with everyone. This could have been a fucking New Kids on the Block album. Mm. Yeah. It probably was. Yeah. This could have been a Pussycat Dolls album. Like, it's fucking Chris Cornell's better than that. So I think he we is. need to we need to come down hard on this you know it's it's a it's a case of you know i'm not angry i'm i'm disappointed or, or no whatever. no you're a right. lot a you're lot right. more than it is with the enemy or the pigeon detectives or lenny kravitz or emerson lake and palmer so for that i am suggesting i'm going to put it above razor light because razor light are genuinely quite like you get quite angry listening to razor light mm. and i don't get angry listening to this i just feel very 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 disappointed and i very feel very confused and it's just it's just really not very good and it is a terrible blot on the legacy of someone who is a fucking legend yeah and they have been i feel like chris Cornell was kind of seduced by the idea of this new world which he, he is good enough to have pulled off but he surrounded himself with someone who you know like i say it's bob rock producing th- the first corn album yeah 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 it's uh, I, you've argued that very very well so you're suggesting we put it at number 29 between razor light and puddle of mud I am suggesting exactly that. I can't say fairer yes. than that, to be honest, and you have argued it very well. And you're right, he deserves so much more. And occasionally, you know, when you go to stuff like Part of Me and stuff like that, there is a little bit of blame you have to put on Chris Cornell as well, isn't there? Not that I'm, I'm keen to do that, but you're right, you do have to at some points. So, yes, fine. Yeah, I, it's a shame, but, you know, there it goes. It's gone yeah. in between Razor Light and Puddle of Mud. So, you know, not in the top 20, but very much not good as well um but listen if you'd like to hear us talk more about chris cornell because really if you listen to this and you're like oh man i'd like to get you know you seem like you like chris cornell we fucking love chris cornell mm-hmm. you can go over to our patreon page patreon.com forward slash right podcast we did a classic album on both super unknown and uh on blow up, blow up the outside world down on the upside sorry <laughs> yeah, so um you know and we spoke about chris cornell a lot in both of those podcasts and particularly his sort of our, our reaction to his final days which we don't really want to get into here because it doesn't really feel like no, the, 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 the best time yeah. unfucking believable unbelievable <laughs> Renfrey I've just picked out next week's it's unreal how this podcast seems to like double up on things all the time right we had like Westlife covering Billy Joel after we'd done Billy Joel we had Crazy Frog and um mr blobby and uh and mr blobby next to each other we had like do you remember we had blood on the dance floor uh next to yeah yeah after broken side and it was just like how come this stuff seems to be like doubling up all the time we've got another pop album from the mid-noughties which is a a bit of a fucking disaster i am me (laughs) by ashley simpson oh next week oh right okay all right ashley simpson now i'm looking at it now and i don't really remember anything about it so that will be that will be interesting but i believe this might have been the time where uh she was doing a lot of lip syncing oh okay badly. okay lovely maybe so we'll see that anyway we'll be back next week chatting all things ashley simpson i imagine she will get 
the brunt of the kicking that we you know we normally are quite funny and you know give people a lot of shit but we weren't going to do that to chris cornell so yeah, Im- imagine ashley simpson will be getting it in the neck quite hard <laughs> next week yes yes that's probably true to be honest oh well oh well anyway thanks very much for listening everyone we'll see you next week with that bye-bye <laughs>